Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Walner. This episode is the fourth in a summer series of interviews with podcast producers from around the world and other people seeking answers and seeking justice. This episode contains some very serious adult matter. If you have kids around, maybe you should listen later. Please use discretion, okay? This week, we're headed to the state of New Mexico in the United States. We're going to visit with Eric Carter Landine, producer and host of the podcast True Consequences. Eric is an advocate for victims and their families. In fact, Eric's family are victims themselves, you could say. Victims of the system, victims of injustice. Eric's younger brother, Jacob, was killed many years ago, and justice has yet to be served. Eric wants to change that. So here he is, Eric Carter Landine. Eric Carter Landine, thank you so much for joining me on Dakota Spotlight Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about your show. First of all, it's called True Consequences. And while I'm occupying the area of the upper Midwest, you are where? Uh, I'm covering crime in New Mexico, which is my home state. It's where I live. It's where I was born and raised. And I'm very passionate about issues of justice and issues of legislation related to justice here in New Mexico. So True Consequences is all about that. It's about creating a platform for myself, for my family, but also for those uh, uh, other individuals in, in the state that are seeking justice for their loved ones. How long have you been doing this? In October, it'll be two years. What got you started or why did you decide to start on your podcast? Well, um, 34 years ago, my baby brother was murdered and his killer was never brought to justice. And as I grew up, you know, I started to see things happening in, in New Mexico that were cases that were very similar to his, which was disturbing to say the least. And I kept saying to myself that somebody should do something about this. Somebody should say something about this epidemic that's happening here with uh, in relation to child abuse. And um, nobody ever did. And 
as time went on, I started to get interested in, in podcasts. And I even tried a hand at a few other podcasts related to child abuse and, and other things that never really took off or never really d- did very much. So uh, put those away and still continue to be a listener for a while. And then one day it just hit me like I could I could do this. I could record a podcast and make it hyper local, which was something that I, I felt was at the time pretty new. It's starting to become more and more popular to do that. Um, I think there was only a handful of highly localized uh, true crime podcasts when I when I came on board, and now they're everywhere, which is awesome and exciting to see that. Um, you know, I, I saw the potential to really make an impact with a true crime podcast because it's at that level. Uh, the national podcast, of course, you know they could they can get some momentum going, but um, the response that I've received here locally has been phenomenal. I mean, the district attorney and the attorney general's offices listen to my podcast, which is is scary and exciting at the same time. <laughs> Do you have a so-called day job or what's your career look like? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm basically what you would consider to be like a regional manager. Ideally, I'd like to get to the point where uh, my nonprofit, which I started recently, hopefully could become my full-time job. Um, this podcast will roll into that. So that's my ultimate goal. But until then, I have to pay the bills, so I have to work. <laughs> that was going to be one of my questions about your nonprofit. How hard is that to get up and, like, what have you learning along the way? It's it's not very easy. I think there's a lot of steps involved and a lot of paperwork, as you can imagine. And, and that takes time. And, you know, I applied for the incorporation through the state of New Mexico in I think it was February and I just got it back at the beginning of June. So it took quite a while for that to get processed. And now I have to file with the IRS and I don't even have any idea how long that's going to take, but I imagine it's going to be a very long time before I get my 5013C status. So yeah, it's a lot of work and it's going to take a while. And then, then we have the problem of finding funding after that. So, you know, it's a very daunting task, but I'm probably one of the most persistent people ever. And so I'm not going to give up on it for sure. Can you tell us a little more about your background growing up? Um, just interests and things like that? Sure. Um, well, like I said, I had a pretty traumatic childhood and that created a, I don't know if we call it a healthy obsession, some kind of obsession with escapism. Um, so you would often find me in the library for hours on end reading uh, tons of books, probably books I should not have been reading. A lot of trash novels, kind of my my go-to for escapism. Dean Kuhn, Stephen King, like those kinds of trashy novels that really nobody has any business reading, but, but I enjoyed them. Uh, and then I also found myself getting into, you know, weird things like the Bermuda Triangle and UFOs and um, Loch Ness Monster and just anything that was strange and bizarre. Uh, and then naturally started gravitating towards mafia bosses and <laughs> crime and that kind of stuff too. So those those things have always been, I think, you know, I think it helps with people who have high anxiety to expose themselves to this kind of stuff so that you can be prepared for any potential eventuality in your life. Um, you know, if I'm going to get abducted by aliens, I'm ready for it. So <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, growing up, that was, that was my life. And I I lived in a very small town. I think there was probably, I mean, it was at its best 10,000 people. Um, today it's like six. So. 
We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. There's this whole spectrum of true crime podcasts, some better than others, some more ethical than others. What are your thoughts on ethics? With regards to ethics, I have a lot to say about this. It is something that is extremely important to me as a, as a content producer. Um, you know, I, I think that, that the quality of a show is, is so important, but the ethics are, are also very important. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think people need to remember that we're talking about the worst day in somebody's life. You know, this is yeah. not a movie. It's not a book. It's not fiction. It's reality. And that needs to be top of mind when creating content related to crime. And I think that intent goes a very long way with regards to ethics and true crime. Not everybody's going to be perfect. You know, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes and I'm, I'm going to say something that, that's wrong. But uh, it's what you do when that happens. You know, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to change your behavior, change your mindset to, to be better? And I, I hope that more creators start going down that road because a lot of them will get defensive when they get called out on things like that. You know, one example is there was a, you, you might've seen this, I don't know if you're on Twitter, but there was a, a victim who was begging a creator to take down a 911 call that he had made when his uh, family member had, had passed away, had been murdered because he was a minor and it was traumatizing for him to hear that. And the creator refused. And then whenever the heat was on enough on that creator, he said, well, fine, but I'm going to take everything off the whole episode. You're not going to get justice for your family member now because you're asking for this. And, and I just feel like that's wrong. Yeah, thanks for providing an example, because as you were talking about this, it struck me that some people don't even know what we're talking about. I mean, ethics is such a broad word, right? But mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I think like, where is that? fine line well, sometimes it's a fine line i mean i've made mistakes but i still stand by my work for the most part you know a couple of mistakes here and there sure well i think the line is is sensationalism i think that's the line um the other line is romanticization uh and fetishization of murderers and serial killers sure um, that's that's another line that that really is disgusting in my opinion mm-hmm. um and, and wrong Honestly, I, I think that true crime should be victim focused and it should be provided through the lens of empathy. And, you know, telling the story for the story's sake is okay, but really I think that we need to move past that and move into 
the place where we're starting to help those family members that are left behind, that are forgotten, that are left holding the bag. Because that pain, you know, the pain of being ignored and gaslit by authorities uh, and not being heard and feeling like you're screaming into the vacuum is the worst pain imaginable. It's almost worse than losing your loved one. Let's move into the story of your brother because you know firsthand what this pain feels like. Please share with us as much as you feel like sharing of your journey and and what you've gone through and I guess whatever you feel like sharing. I know it's a tough topic. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So my brother was nine months old when he was murdered. And um, it's very clear that it was my mom's boyfriend at the time. My mom has asked me not to call him our stepfather because she feels that he doesn't deserve that title. And uh, I'm inclined to agree with her. I'm inclined to agree with her on that. Um, but he, the story is, is pretty long and involved. And if you want, you know, a lot of detail, you can definitely listen to the three episodes on my show. Um, starting with the one that where I interviewed my mom, but, um, this man kind of swooped into our lives in a moment of vulnerability for my mother and I, um, my mom had just separated from my dad. Uh, we were moving back from Texas to New Mexico to be close to family. And he stepped in and started love bombing us basically, which for, for people who don't know what that is, it's, it's basically showering your victim or intended victim with affection and attention and gifts. Um, it's a form of disarming that if you're in a vulnerable state is very difficult to see as threatening and dangerous. Um, especially in the eighties when we didn't have information about behavior like this, uh, there wasn't a word for it. So th- that's what happened. And, and what happens is you start to, your mind starts to create this ideal version of this person. And, um, it's normal for people to fall in love with these people, with these predators when they're, when they're behaving this way, because my mother, my mom was so starved for attention and I was so starved for attention that when this happened, it was like, wow, this is, this is what it's supposed to be like. Like, it's like the movies, right? It feels great. Um, and it was great until it wasn't. And things started happening to my brother. He started to have injuries that were unexplainable and a lot of things happened in between, but essentially, uh, I had been sent to live with my father and the only person that was with this man was my brother. Uh, after weeks of not being left alone with him because of circumstances and within, I would say less than an hour, maybe 40 minutes, my brother was unconscious and being airlifted to a trauma center and he died that evening. And what happened after was was pretty intense and and pretty um, horrific. You know, I, I always tell people that my life could have been one of those made-for-TV movies that you used to watch in the 80s and 90s, the super dramatic. Um, that's what it felt like looking back at it. Um, yeah, my mom didn't really know that her then-boyfriend was responsible for Jacob's death. Um He claimed that it was an accident, and she believed him. We will be right back with Eric Carter-Landine, host and producer of the podcast True Consequences. 
We're talking about the murder of Eric's younger brother, Jacob. Fall is here and class is back in session. It's a busy time for students and faculty, and with a new school year comes new adventures, new experiences, and new goals to achieve. But as much promise and excitement as the fall semester brings, there can also be a dark side to it, one in which the unthinkable can happen. I'm Amy Slashberg. And I'm Megan Sachs. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. As educators and criminologists, we teach, research, write, and podcast about victims, offenders, and the issues that surround our criminal justice system. Amy and I I have both worked in the field of criminal justice for 20 years, myself in law enforcement and Amy in the mental health field. In Campus Killings, we'll dive into some of the most shocking and tragic murders to happen on school grounds, and we'll provide our analysis on the cases we cover as both educators and trained criminologists. We'll discuss what went wrong and what could have been done differently to prevent the tragic outcome. Campus Killings is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Campus Killings. Scams and Cons tells you how scams are run and why people fall for them. And I've lost everything. It's all I had. Uh, It's any inheritance that I could have passed on my daughter. Many of the people you meet today were financially devastated when they started using Jeff's system. And now they're making more money than they ever dreamed of. Scams are illusions intended to make you believe that giving up your money is the most sensible thing you can do. Find out how it's done by listening to Scams and Cons wherever you get podcasts. We are back with Eric Carter Landine, producer of the podcast True Consequences. Check him out anywhere you get your podcasts or at trueconsequences.com. He claimed that it was an accident, and she believed him. And, and there's a lot of reasons why she believed him. Uh, probably the biggest reason was that we knew this man our entire lives. He was not, he was not a stranger to us. He was my father's best friend. His family and my family were very connected. His dad was a preacher at a church that my family went to. His sister was married to my mom's brother. His aunt is my godmother. So we felt like we knew this person. And it didn't seem likely, and anybody who knows this person would agree, that this is not the type of thing that you would expect from him. Because he does present this persona in public of somebody gregarious and kind and loving and caring and empathetic. But none of that is is real. That's all a show. So uh, their relationship continued. And, and another reason that she believed him was because he had been given a polygraph exam. And while we know that those are not re- very reliable now, in the 80s, those were kind of the end-all be-all. Like if you pass the polygraph you were essentially innocent. And so he took the polygraph. He claimed to have passed it. Um, My mom believed him because he walked out of the state police office. So she thought, of course he passed it. Why would he have walked out? Why would, you know, if he would have failed it, they would have arrested him. So, uh, and that's foreshadowing for anybody who's paying attention. Did you believe he was innocent yourself? So I had never witnessed him hitting or hurting Jacob. And he didn't, from from testimony that I gave, in a, or not testimony, but from a, an interview that I gave with the state police, I said that he had never hit me, but he always acted like he was going to. And when I was being interviewed, prior to my interview, he, because, you know, they interview the whole family to rule out who's responsible. 
he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, don't lie. Don't you dare lie. You know what happens to people who lie. My goodness. My mom continued to be with him because she believed his, that that it was an accident. She believed him. And once they were living together and married, he became extremely abusive to her physically, um, to me emotionally, uh, sexually, and uh, essentially we lived in in a horrifying environment where at nine years old I I had a, a kitchen knife under my pillow, a can of hairspray and a lighter, and a baseball bat under my bed uh, in case I had to defend myself. It was terrifying. And when he was abusing me, he would tell me that if I ever said anything to anybody, that he would kill my mom and I, and, and nobody would ever know where we were. So eventually my mom left him. And he started trying to groom my 14-year-old cousin. And this is something that, you know, I was on, on a YouTube channel and very popular creator and some of the comments were were disgusting, and one in particular was related to to this particular topic, um, the topic of grooming. So somebody had said something to the effect that my mom only left her then husband because he was hitting on my fourteen year old cousin. I just have to say, like that is so wrong on every level because first of all, uh, that's not called hitting on somebody. That's that's called grooming. For sexual abuse, right? Um, a fourteen-year-old cannot consent to sex with an adult, so it's not called sex; it's called sexual abuse or rape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, had my mom known that I was being abused, I firmly believe that she would have left. But I didn't say anything until we were far away from danger, um, because I, I genuinely believe that he was going to murder us. My cousin was one of those people that you, if you're going to ask her to not say something, you're just, you're asking the wrong person because she has a a very large, loud mouth um, and she doesn't care what other people think. She's going to say whatever's on her mind. And so she, he said, he told her like not to say anything to anybody about him, you know, grooming her. And she proceeded to tell everybody. So my mom left him. You know, we filed a police report for my cousin. Um, I then told my mom what had happened to me. I filed a police report. He was never arrested for for any of that. Um, not to mention the multiple times that the police came out while my mom was being physically abused and obviously beat up. Um, never, never arrested. Some of that, I believe, has to do with the fact that he was friends with all of the police in the town. Um, they played basketball together every weekend. And so when he said, oh, I don't know, she's just being crazy and she attacked me and I had to defend myself, they believed him. Plus it was the, the early 90s at this point. You know, it was pretty pretty common for domestic violence to be ignored. And he has no record at all. Where is he today? Or he's alive? Yep, and he's still in the same town that my mom lives in. So, well, first of all, let's let's just... Remind people how they can listen to your podcast. Let's hear every th- all the ways to keep in touch or keep up to date on your project. Sure. Uh, you could go to trueconsequences.com. Um, 
you know, I'm on every podcatcher that you can imagine. And if you're listening on a podcatcher and you can't find True Consequences, you know, email me, eric at trueconsequences.com, and I'll add my feed there as well. I feel like I've done a pretty thorough job of, of sending it out wherever it needs to go, so at least to the more popular ones. You on um, Twitter? I'm on Twitter at TrueConsPod. I'm on Facebook at True Consequences Pod and on Instagram at True Consequences Pod. Let's talk about your Justice for Jacob campaign. How did that all come up? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest issue and struggle that we've had, my mom and I, has been the fact that the person responsible has never been prosecuted, has never been charged for Jacob's murder. And there's a lot we didn't know prior to me starting this podcast. We just knew that nothing had happened. So when my mom had been interviewed initially, they asked her if she felt like her boyfriend at the time would have been capable of harming Jacob in that way. And her response was, I don't think so. Because like I said, we didn't believe that that was possible. The DA at the time took that as her giving him an alibi, which... (laughs) Doesn't okay, make, that, it doesn't make any sense, really. That's that's not an alibi because because nobody could have alibied him because he was the only one there with Jacob. Um, the DA refused to bring charges because of that. Um, he accused my mom of changing her story and of being vindictive about the divorce. And that's why she wanted to press charges. And really what had happened was that she went from not feeling that he was capable of that to completely believing that he was capable of it because of the multiple attempts on her life, as well as his, his other behaviors that showed that he was, you know, there was one, one point in the relationship where he had wrapped a wire hanger around her neck and was choking her out and she almost died. And had I not thrown a rock through their bedroom window, she probably would have. So once that DA was, was out of office, we approached the new DA and they also refused to prosecute. And every time we brought it back up, we were basically told or treated as if we were crazy. We were, um, trying to cause problems for this poor man that everybody loves and the level of gaslighting that happens to victims' families is obscene. And that pain is what I was talking about before is something that it's like being re-traumatized at a deeper level because you start to question your own sanity. You start to question your own recollection of events. You start to question the severity of the trauma that you endured. Um, Because if nobody else can see how horrible this was, then it must not have been that horrible. And that creates another layer (laughs) of PTSD on top of everything else. Oh my goodness. Um, so we went years and years. And like I said, I, I kind of started to see things like uh, Victoria Martin's case, which is a horrifying case of child abuse, uh, child sexual abuse and murder. Uh, Omar E. Varela, there's so many others that happened here that uh, those children have not received justice or at least what I perceive to be what would be considered justice. And so um, at first I didn't really want to tell Jacob's story. I didn't really want to open myself up to everybody in this way. When you started the podcast, 
do you feel like you, in hindsight, do you feel like you were aware of the fact that it was your brother sort of behind the whole thing and that you would someday talk about it? Or did it kind of creep up on you? It, it was more of a, a desire to honor him hmm. by helping others. Uh, I had essentially given up on any hope that there would be a possibility for justice for him because it had been so long. And I also just didn't want to open up those wounds in, in public. He, there were friends of mine that had never even heard this part of my life because anytime I ever tried to tell people this part of my life, I was met with a very visceral reaction, um, which made me feel like I was traumatizing others and I didn't want to do that. So I stopped talking about it. No fault of the people who reacted. It, it's a horrifying story. People are going to have reactions. Anyway, I eventually started having conversations with victims' families. And one particular conversation, I told the mother of a victim that uh, if you ignore or stay silent about these issues, then you're basically allowing them to continue. And essentially felt like I'd punch myself in the stomach with that and said, well, I guess I have to say something. I have to do something. And I asked my mom if she would be willing to be interviewed. And she agreed. And that was actually the first time we ever talked about the story together. It took us, I think, about four hours to get through it. From that, you know, I was connected with a former prosecutor here in New Mexico. And we talked through, you know, why the justice system is the way that it is here and why my brother's case ended up in the situation that it was. And I requested documents from the state police from their investigation and learned a lot of things. And I learned that my mom's ex-husband had failed the polygraph. I learned that he confessed to murdering my brother. You know, I learned a lot of details from the um, OMI report. And all of that was very frustrating. It is isn't even the right word. It's like whatever the next level of that is, times 10 is what that, that feeling was because at that point I'm like, well, how could how could he have gotten away with this? There are problems, major problems. We don't have, we have a note that says that he confessed, but there's no record of his confession. There's no recording. There's no notes. There's no signed confession. There's nothing that indicates what he actually said or what circumstances led to that confession. A lot of evidence is missing. We don't know where it is. Has anyone ever comment, any agency ever commented on that aspect of it? Why are the records missing? Yeah, they've been asked, but there's, there's no answer. We get, it was a long time ago, <laughs> a long time ago, but okay, there's a lot of things that happened a long time ago that we still have records of. So even older than 1987, um, so I I don't know, but um, I started the campaign to to get justice, and I've been very cautious and and methodical about how I've approached this advocacy. Um, I didn't want to just come out guns blazing and you know make everyone mad right away. I wanted a slow burn, <laughs> let them get mad slowly. Um, because I, I wanted to give everyone the chance, you know, I wanted to give the DA a chance to um, to do something, to do the right thing. But eventually, after really no movement, I decided to leverage the tens of thousands of people who've heard Jacob's story and ask them to help me 
by putting pressure on the DA, um, by calling and emailing and, and writing to him and asking him to reopen Jacob's case. And, you know, I, I can tell you we received a response. I can't really tell you what is happening right now with the case, but um, I can tell you we have heard back from the DA. And um, I'll also tell you that we have hope. Yeah. Um, July 1st was the was Jacob's 35th birthday. And um, it's the first birthday of his that I've had hope for his case and for justice for him. You know, you said you tried to tell people and they reacted in a way that kind of just had, you know, led you to sort of bury things. What would you recommend to people when interacting with victims? Was there anything they could have done differently? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think for me, what it would have been helpful would have been to have somebody like take my hand or put their arm around me and say, I'm here for you. And if you ever need anything or if you ever just need to talk, or if you ever just need a hug, like I will always be here for you. Like that, that would have gone a long way to at least make me feel like I'm not some three-headed monster walking around on the earth because that's that's exactly what it felt like, you know? Like I'm like this freak who had this horrible tragedy happen to me and nobody could possibly ever understand. And, and you know, there are a lot of people who, who could not understand it, but to just say I'm here for you um, or would have been helpful. Yeah. I think that it's human nature to want to fix things, but some things can't be fixed. And sometimes it's enough to just be there. I want to make sure people understand that you put out podcast episodes about a lot of things. Yeah. You know, I, I try to talk about things that I feel are important or could be beneficial to people. Um, there are people who, who have no idea about domestic violence and, and what it's like and what it does to people. And, and I think it's really important for, for everyone to know about it because it's my opinion that the reason we can't get our hands around this issue of domestic violence is because we don't talk about it. We don't, um, either we don't talk about it or people don't want to hear about it because it's too much, you know? Yeah. Um, but we can't ignore this problem away. We can't ignore child abuse away. It's not going to go away until we're able to really face it as a society. And that's going to involve a lot of things. It's going to involve legislation. It's going to involve support services, uh, mental health services. A lot of, a lot of, lot of things have to go into, um, making this problem less of a problem. But I think the first step is in amplifying the voices of people who have lived through it and listening to them because a lot of people are willing to or quick to judge people who are in intimate partner violent relationships uh, without really understanding how you get into that situation and how difficult it is to get out. Fantastic. And, you know, best of luck with your nonprofit. Was there anything I didn't ask you about that you were hoping I would ask or anything else you want to say? Well, if anybody's into the paranormal, I have another show called Dos Pequeños, which is all about uh, paranormal stuff in New Mexico. And it's really fun and funny. So if you're if you're not into what I call my bummer show, True Consequences, check out my fun show, Dos Pequeños. Eric Carter Landine. Thank you so much for being on Dakota Spotlight Podcast, and uh, best of luck to you in the future. Thanks, James, and have a great night.
This was Eric Carter Landine, producer of the podcast True Consequences. Check him out anywhere you get your podcasts or at trueconsequences.com. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, produced, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner. Thanks again for listening this week. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.